Let's pray. Father, open our eyes that we may behold wondrous things from your word. Instruct us and cause us to understand what you have revealed here, that we might believe what it teaches and trust what it promises and obey what it commands for your glory and our joy. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Galatians chapter 3. Stop me if you know this one. Father Abraham had many sons. Many sons, said Father Abraham. I am one of them. So are you. So let's all praise the Lord. Right arm. Now we're not going to do the whole thing. I bet many of you are familiar with that song. But you ever wonder why we teach our children uh, a song about being sons of Abraham? I suspect the vast majority of us are not physically descended from Abraham. So why sing this song other than to get the kids to expend energy, which admittedly has its value? What makes someone one of Abraham's descendants? Why does it matter? Why is it something worth praising the Lord about? I trust that he didn't have the song in mind, but these are questions that the Apostle Paul addresses in our passage this morning in Galatians 3. Now, if you're just joining us, we've been working through Paul's letter to the Galatians over the past few months, and we recently looked in some detail at Paul's thesis statement for this book, the, the reason that he's writing in Galatians 2, 15 to 21. So contrary to this false teaching that was going on in Galatia uh, from Paul's opponents, uh, Paul trumpets this truth that right standing with God does not come through what we earn for our obedience to God's commands, but rather it's a gift received through faith in Christ. It's what we call justification by faith alone. As Kwathi mentioned last week, having made this core claim now in Galatians 2, Paul moves on to defend it and support it through a a number of lines of evidence. And this runs really through chapter 3 and into chapter 4. Paul's supporting this claim that justification comes through faith alone. So last week in Galatians 3, 1 to 5, we saw how Paul appealed to the Galatians' own experience as evidence that the Galatians themselves had received new life from the Holy Spirit when they heard Paul preach about the death and resurrection of Christ, and they believed. It hadn't been when they had become adequately obedient to God's commands. That is, it was through faith and not through works. But now he transitions to make an argument from a source that is far more certain and far more important than personal experience. Now he's going to argue directly from the Bible. Paul emphasizes here these these biblical themes of blessing and cursing and the central role of of this figure, Abraham. And as he does so, it's it's hard to miss just in the the passage that we read, the, the sheer amount of Old Testament Scripture that Paul 
quotes. That's one of the densest collection of biblical quotations in any of Paul's letters. In these nine verses, he refers to six separate Old Testament passages. And in turn, each one of these biblical quotations serves as a sort of hyperlink to a a whole network of other biblical teaching that Paul is, is drawing on. Each one of these Old Testament passages that he that he quotes, and the claim that he makes that's attached to it could could stand as its own sermon as we dig deeper into exactly what what Paul was saying, how he was interpreting each one, which you can breathe a sigh of relief. This morning, I'm only going to provide an overview, not least because Ursula expects me to be done at a certain time so we can receive the children. Paul likely introduces these points uh, of, of supporting Old Testament Scriptures because they were a direct response to what his opponents were teaching the Galatians. We don't have a record of exactly what they, were, what they were teaching. Remember, reading biblical letters is a bit like listening to one end of a telephone call. If you're under 30, a telephone call is like a text, but you use your voice. <laughs> Remember, we only hear one end of the conversation And so we have to, to the best of our ability, reconstruct what's being said on the other end. So we put together a picture of what Paul's opponents were teaching based on what Paul says in response. It's called mirror reading. So given what we read here, we can surmise that Paul's opponents may have said something like this. Well, Paul, you can appeal to the Galatians' experience all you want, but what really matters is what the Bible says. And specifically, we'd like to present the example of Abraham as exhibit A to defend our teaching. There's no surprise there, really. Abraham was probably the most important individual for the Jews. He's the father of the Jewish people. He is the paradigm of what it means to be a faithful follower of the God of Israel. And if the Bible, especially what the Bible says about Abraham, is on your side... Well, that's some weighty evidence in your favor. So Paul's opponents may well have have argued, look, Paul, we know from the Bible that Abraham was blessed by God, and that blessing was promised to his descendants after him. We also know from the Bible that blessing comes through obedience to the law, right? Because the Bible says all these blessings will come on you if you obey the Lord your God. Well, if that's the case, then Abraham must have been blessed because he was obedient to God's law. And blessing is promised to his descendants through doing the works required by the law, just like Abraham. And we know from other Jewish writings at the time, uh, not Scripture, mind you, but other religious texts that reflected the teaching of the rabbis and the development of Jewish tradition, we know from these other Jewish writings at the time that that it was thought that Abraham was, quote, perfect in all his deeds with the Lord and well-pleasing in righteousness all the days of his life. Another book said that Abraham was justified by God, specifically said he was justified before God through his works. There's even a tradition at the time that went so far as to say that Abraham never sinned, but he was completely obedient to the law, even though the law wasn't given until hundreds of years after Abraham died. He fulfilled the law before the law even existed, and so so he was righteous. 
Paul's opponents would have said, Abraham is the patriarch, the father of God's people. He was blessed because he obeyed God's law. So it stands to reason that to be in Abraham's family and share in his blessing, it requires that you do what Abraham did, that is, follow the law and accrue righteousness the same way. So you need to be circumcised like Abraham. You need to follow the law like Abraham, and then you'll be blessed like Abraham. This may have been quite convincing to the Galatians. The the fact that Paul has to write this this letter defending the true teaching of the gospel seems to indicate that the Galatians were being taken in by this kind of false teaching. And it might have been quite convincing in part because these false teachers appealed to the Bible. They, they They weren't appealing to something else, and the Galatians could say, well, that's not what Scripture says, so we just are going to ignore that. They are appealing to the Bible to make their argument for this false teaching. Their argument had the appearance of being biblical. It's a good place to pause and remember that just because someone appeals to the Bible or makes arguments from the Bible doesn't mean that they're being faithful to what the Bible teaches. In fact, some of the worst false teachers and heretics in the history of Christianity have not been those who deny the authority of the Bible and try to argue against Christianity from other sources. It's rather those who use the Bible to contradict what the Bible actually teaches. I think you see this in spades in the example of Jehovah's Witnesses. But just because someone uses statements from the Bible doesn't mean that they're being faithful to what the Bible teaches, right? You don't don't make something salty just by sprinkling a bit of salt on it. You don't make something biblical by sprinkling a few Bible verses on it. It's one of the reasons why the bread and butter of our preaching here is to work through books of the Bible passage by passage. We don't just want to sprinkle you with out-of-context Bible verses. We don't want to to put together biblical teaching in such a way that it ends up looking like a Picasso painting. We want to teach what the Bible teaches in its context. And more than that, I don't just want to tell you what the Bible teaches. I want to help you to see where and how and why it teaches it, why it is biblical. That's exactly what Paul does here, albeit in a very compact space. Says what Scripture actually teaches is far different than what his opponents claimed. So let's look now at how Paul makes his case from the Bible and why it matters. His argument here breaks down into two parts. Verses 6 to 9, he answers this question, who are truly Abraham's children? Who, who truly shares in Abraham's blessing? The answer, unsurprisingly, if you've been following along with us in Galatians, is Abraham's children, those who share in Abraham's blessing, are those who have faith in Christ, not those who do the works of the law. And then verses 10 to 14, he builds on this and he explains why it is that this blessing comes through faith and not through the law. So to begin with, verses 6 to 9, who are Abraham's children and who shares in Abraham's blessing? We know this is the central question that he's addressing in these verses because of the conclusions that he makes in verse 7 and verse 9. Again, verse 7, understand then that those who have faith are children of Abraham. Verse 9, so 
Those who rely on faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. These conclusions are sort of mutually explanatory. Those who are Abraham's children are those who share his blessing. Those who share Abraham's blessing are his children. And so two questions come up here. What is Abraham's blessing exactly? And then who, who shares in it? So what's Abraham's blessing? Well, Abraham was blessed in many ways. If you go back and read the accounts in Genesis, he was chosen by God to be the father of a family that would become God's chosen nation and through which he would bring his Redeemer, the Messiah. Abraham was promised a land that his descendants would later possess. He became very wealthy, riches, flocks, servants. He and his wife lived well into old age. Those from the nations around him called him a mighty prince among us. Had we seen Abraham and all that he had, we may well have said that he was blessed outwardly. But according to Paul, none of these things constituted Abraham's blessing. They were gifts from the Lord, yes, certainly, but they were not the true blessing that he possessed, that which would be shared by his children. See, in Paul's explanation here, the blessing of Abraham refers to two central gifts, justification and the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, righteousness and regeneration, a new spiritual standing before God and a new spiritual life from God. Paul says, in effect, that way back in Genesis when God promised to bless Abraham and through Abraham to bless all the nations of the world, this is the blessing that he had in mind. And this has been the thrust of what Paul has been saying really since Galatians 2.15. What is it that comes to those who trust in Christ? Justification, right? That's the focus of Galatians 2.15 to 21. And what comes to those who trust in Christ? The gift of the Spirit dwelling within us. That's the focus of Galatians 3, 1 to 5. We see the same thing in these verses. Look again at verse 8. Scripture foresaw that God would justify the Gentiles by faith and announced the gospel in advance to Abraham. All nations, that is the Gentiles, it's the same word, will be blessed through you. So the Bible says that when God promised Abraham, all nations will be blessed through you, it's preaching the gospel and foretelling that God would justify the Gentiles by faith. The justification of the Gentiles by faith and the blessing of the nations through Abraham are equated. It's the same promise. And so that's a, we could say much more there, but just notice now, the promised blessing given to Abraham, Paul says, is justification by faith. But it's not only that, it's also this gift of the Spirit. Verse 14, He redeemed us in order that the blessing given to Abraham might come to the Gentiles through Christ Jesus, so that by faith we might receive the promise of the Spirit. Now, these aren't two separate ideas, rather the, the, the second statement defines the first. The blessing given to Abraham here is defined as receiving the promised gift of the Spirit. And that fills out more what we saw in, in Galatians uh, 2, 15 to 21, this double grace of the gospel. 
that we're justified before God by grace through faith in Christ alone, and so we receive a a new permanent irreversible status of righteousness, and also that we're united to Christ and so are made alive as we no longer live, but Christ lives in us by His Spirit. That's Abraham's blessing. But the question that Paul is at pains to answer here is then, well, who shares in that blessing? Who shares in that blessing? Who is part of Abraham's family? Father Abraham had many sons, but who is one of them? In the Bible, the idea of being Abraham's descendants is not limited to his physical descendants. The the question of who Abraham's children are is not so much a genealogical question, it's a theological question. It has to do with this question of who inherits the promises made to Abraham, and thus who shares in the blessings of those promises being fulfilled. And even the Jews at the time understood this. They didn't consider themselves children of Abraham simply because they were physically descended from him. Remember, after all, Abraham had two sons, Isaac and Ishmael, but only one of them, Isaac, was the child of the promise, the heir of Abraham's blessing, his covenant with God. So even from the beginning, it was understood that being Abraham's children was something more than a question of physical descent. It had everything to do with who shared in Abraham's covenant relationship with God and the blessing of the promises made to him. And if you want to read more about this, Paul actually makes this point quite elaborately in Romans 9. So if Abraham's children are not his physical descendants, then who are they? Who are his heirs? We see here there's two competing groups that lay claim to those to those blessings. The first group are those who are seeking to be righteous before God through their works, those who think they can receive the Spirit through their works, first being circumcised like Abraham was circumcised, and then going on to obey the works of the law. Now, in these verses, Paul uses a sort of shorthand to define this group. He simply calls them those who are of works, uh, translated for us in, in this passage as those who rely on the works of the law or who rely on the law. Really, that's just of works of the law or of the law. They are, so to speak, the works party. On the other side, there are those who are seeking to be justified by faith in Christ, who know they receive the Spirit through believing the gospel of Christ crucified. And Paul refers to them simply as those who are of faith. Here's translated, those who have faith or those who rely on faith. They are the faith party. And ultimately, everyone belongs to one of these two parties. You either belong to those who are of works, who rely on the works of the law to get blessing, or you belong to those who are of faith, who rely on Christ by faith to receive blessing. Those are the only two options. It was the only two options then. It's the only two options now. And Paul makes it quite clear who it is that shares in this blessing. Verse 6 Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Understand then that it is those who have faith who are children of Abraham. According to the Bible, Abraham received his blessing of justification before God through faith, not through works of any kind. And this becomes a a linchpin in Paul's explanation of the gospel. Abraham himself, the father of the Jewish people, the one 
with whom God made His covenant, Abraham was justified by faith, not by works. What's more, he was justified by faith long before he was ever given this covenant sign of circumcision, the point that Paul made in Romans 4. And so Paul concludes, it's those who share in Abraham's faith, his faith in God's promises concerning the Messiah, who share in Abraham's blessing. True blessing from God comes through faith in Christ. I want to pause here for a moment and reflect on on the implications of, of this. Everyone wants to be blessed. I don't know that I've ever met a person who has said, do you want to live a blessed life? And they would say, no, I would prefer not to. Even those who don't believe in, in any kind of God will speak of their blessings or being blessed. Now, if I asked you, how has God blessed you, how would you respond? I suspect that when we ask a question like that, we're prone to think of things like, well, God is, has blessed me, He's given me good health, a good job, good friends, a, a wonderful family. Uh, I enjoy the comforts and privileges of living in a, in a free and prosperous country. All these things truly are blessings from God, for which we ought to be thankful. But I wonder if that's how Abraham would answer. I wonder if that's how Paul would answer. If we were to ask Abraham, Paul, how has God blessed you? I think they would respond with something more like, how has God blessed us? He has given us His only Son, and through faith in Him, we've been justified by His grace as a gift, and His Spirit has given us new and eternal life, and everything else is secondary to this. The great blessings of the gospel that Paul points to here are the the gift of Christ's righteousness for us and the gift of the Holy Spirit in us. And it's not as if Paul and Abraham would say this because they didn't have the blessings that we have, so they resorted to talking about something kind of more ethereal and spiritual. They didn't have all the material things that that we had, and so their blessings, they had to to say, were, were more spiritual than anything else. No, they would say this because they, reconcile, they recognize that, that there's no blessing more precious than this. And if, if we don't keep this proper perspective, we might be tempted to think of ourselves as blessed only when we possess the outward, temporary things that the world considers life's greatest blessings. We might consider ourselves cursed if we don't have those things. And Paul and Abraham offer us a wonderful corrective in this. See, Paul had, had none of those things, right? He was, after his conversion, an itinerant church planter and preacher. He had given up everything that the world would call privilege and blessing for the sake of knowing Christ. And Paul knew that in having Christ, he was truly blessed. But then Abraham, on the other hand, Abraham had everything. He had health and wealth and power and influence, and yet for him to be blessed was not a matter of any of those things. The blessing of Abraham was justification and life in the Spirit received through faith, something infinitely more valuable than anything he could possess in the world. 
And this changes the equation of what it means to be blessed. So contrary to the charlatan prosperity gospel preachers that are out there, God doesn't grant material blessings as a reward for faith. See, if we think of blessing primarily in terms of possessions or health or success or worldly happiness, we are, we are settling for trinkets compared to the greatest eternal blessings offered by God. So, Christian, are you blessed? Yes. Because God has given you His Son, and in His Son you have eternal life, righteousness. That's what it means to be blessed. If you hear this and think, well, that's all well and good, but the blessing I'd really like is some more money or better health or career success and so forth, it's akin to saying you'd prefer to exchange the greenbacks in your wallet for monopoly money. You've done a serious miscalculation about what is truly valuable. So take care that we don't confuse the world's definition of blessing with what the Bible says. In these few verses, which are really just the tip of the iceberg and a much more elaborate explanation, Paul dismantles the claim that his opponents would have made, that Abraham was justified by works and that therefore those who do the works of the law are the ones who inherit his blessing. Rather, it's those who have faith in Christ who are blessed with Abraham. But his opponents, or perhaps even the Galatians themselves, might have gone on to question him. Say, okay, Paul, if, if that's how you explain Abraham's case, then what do you make of the fact that the, that the Bible says that blessing comes through obedience to God's commands? What exactly, uh, why exactly doesn't God's blessing come through the works of the law, if that's what it seems to say? That's what he addresses in verses 10 to 14. The reason, Paul says, is that those who rely on works to be blessed are, in tragic irony, not only not blessed, they are cursed. Verse 10, for all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. As it is written, cursed is everyone who does not continue to do everything written in the book of the law. Just a restatement of what Paul's already said in Galatians 2. By works of the law, no one will be justified. And if righteousness came through the law, then Christ died for nothing. Now, there in chapter 2, he simply states those things as fact, but here he goes into a bit more detail and explains from Scripture why it is that justification does not come through works of the law. The law doesn't lead to the blessing of justification because it curses all disobedience. But the problem is not with the law per se, as elsewhere Paul will say the law itself is good and righteous and holy. The problem is that people are relying on their works of obedience to the law to bring blessing, but, but the law demands personal, perpetual, perfect obedience. Sincere, well-intentioned attempts at obedience are not enough. You have to obey it personally. You have to obey it perfectly. You have to obey it perpetually. You might respond by saying, well, then it's not those who rely on the works of the law who are under a curse, but rather those who rely on the works of the law and fail to keep it that are cursed. But those who succeed in keeping it can be blessed. 
But the reason that Paul can say what he, what he says here is because he knows, as we deep down all know, that no mere human being, fallen and sinful as we are, can keep God's law the way God requires. All who rely are under a curse because none who rely on the law can keep it. We might try to put a salve on our conscience by saying that we've not really done that poorly at following God's law. Under this, we make a list of all the things that we haven't done, all the ways that we haven't been as bad as somebody else. We haven't murdered anyone, we haven't stolen anything, we haven't committed adultery and so forth. But recall how Jesus expands our understanding of what the law actually demands. You haven't murdered anyone, but if you've entertained hate for anyone in your heart, you've already committed murder. You haven't stolen anything, but you've, if you've coveted anything in your heart, you've already stolen it. You haven't committed adultery, but if you've lusted after someone in your heart, then you've already committed adultery. See, sin is not merely our external actions, it's also our internal disposition. We may be able to master the external appearances and manifestations of our sin, but internally we cannot obey the law personally, perfectly, and perpetually. Can you with a clear conscience say that you've always, from the moment of your birth until now, always loved God perfectly, loved your neighbor perfectly? You know, the answer is no. We don't even live up to the standards that we set for ourselves, let alone God's law. God doesn't grade on a curve, accepting our best sincere efforts in place of the obedience that His law demands. If you do not obey the law personally and perfectly and perpetually, the result is not blessing but curse. Not God's favor, but God's condemnation. That might seem harsh and unfair, right? We think that everyone should get a participation trophy for trying their best. As we'll see in greater detail next week, that's not the case at all. The law was never intended to bring about justification and life. It was rather to illustrate how we cannot live up to God's gloriously perfect standard to show us that all our sinful efforts and obedience could only bring a curse and that we need to be rescued by a Savior. To say that it's unfair for God not to accept our, our imperfect attempts at obedience is like saying that it's unfair that I can't get to the moon by driving a car. That's just not how it works. I can drive the rest of my life over every square inch of of this planet, and I will never get closer to the moon because what I'm traveling in was never designed to get me to that destination. If you rely on the, the law, the works of obedience to justify you, you'll never be justified. You'll never be blessed. As he says in verse 12, if you try to be justified by this law, the, the only way is perfect obedience. The law requires do this and live, but you will never be able to do this, and so you will not live but die in your sins. And that's the condition of every human being that has ever lived from Adam on down to the eight billion people on the planet today. All that is, except one, 
the Lord Jesus Christ. God become a man, the Word who became flesh and dwelt among us. As Paul says in Romans 8, what the law was powerless to do, God did by sending His Son in the likeness of sinful flesh to be a sin offering. So Christmas, we celebrate that God came to dwell among us in the person of of Jesus, truly God and truly man, but He didn't come to just visit and see how things were going, to be a cute baby that we can put in the manger. He came for a specific purpose. He came to redeem those who were under the law's curse that we might receive the blessing of justification and eternal life through the Spirit. That's what we read in verse 13. While all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law. And how did He do it? Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hung on a pole or a tree. The law curses all of those who are not perfectly, personally, perpetually obedient to it. But Christ was all of those things. The Lord Jesus Himself always perfectly loved God and loved others. He never sinned. He was entirely obedient to God's laws. He said, I have not come to destroy the law, but to fulfill it. He came to perfectly fulfill the law. He's the only person who has ever lived who has not deserved the law's curse of condemnation. And yet, Paul says, He became a curse for us through being hung on a tree, His death on the cross. The one who in himself was righteous and blessed was treated as unrighteous and cursed, and he died on the cross under the curse of God's judgment. But it was not judgment for his own sin. It was not the curse due to him. It was judgment for our sin, the curse due to us. The law can only curse us, and reliance on our works can only lead us to condemnation. But Christ lived the perfect life of personal, perpetual obedience that we should have lived. He died the cursed death for sin that we all deserve to die. He rose again to life, demonstrating that He bore that curse finally and fully for all who will trust in Him. And He did this, Paul says, in order that the blessing given to Abraham might come to the Gentiles through Christ Jesus, so that by faith we might receive the promise of the Spirit. He was cursed that we might be blessed. If Jesus had not lived this life of perfect obedience as a man and died this death under the condemning curse of God's wrath, we would not be blessed with a new status of righteousness before God. We would not have new spiritual life. We would remain dead in our sins and under God's righteous condemnation, completely alienated from God and cut off from the blessings promised. The only way that anyone can be blessed with Abraham is if Christ absorbs the curse of our disobedience and gives us the blessing that His obedience deserves. And this is that great exchange that the gospel proclaims. This is the divine method of saving sinners through faith, apart from works. So, friends, if you want to be blessed... 
If you want to be truly blessed, declared righteous before God, given new life by the Holy Spirit, be like Abraham and look to Jesus. Every other avenue leads only to an eternity of remaining under the curse of God. It is only in reliance upon Christ and Christ alone that we can be truly blessed. Father Abraham had many sons. I am one of them. Are you? Faith in Christ alone, the Our curse-bearing Redeemer places you in Abraham's family, the family of those who have been purchased by His blood, reconciled to God through the death of His Son, and who become, like Abraham, friends of God. That's something that's worth praising the Lord about. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank You that though we, in ourselves, are under the curse of our disobedience that Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law and has given us His righteousness, blessed us with the gift of His Spirit that we might have life eternal. God, help us to to accurately uh, place value on those blessings. Help us not to be drawn off by what the world says blessing is but to be rooted in what Your Word says blessing is and to be thankful. Pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.